Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist and the Magical Mystery Tour Called Life, Matthew DiBiase. Tonight's guest is author and military historian Peter Cousins. Peter is the author of 17 very distinguished and critically acclaimed books on the Civil War in the American West. He recently retired after 30 years as a Foreign Service Officer with the U.S. Department of State. He also served four years as an Army Officer before joining the Foreign Service. All of Cousins' books have been selections of the Book of the Month Club, History Book Club, and or the Military Book Club. In 2002, Cousins received uh, the American Foreign Service Association's highest award given annually to one foreign service officer for exemplary moral courage, integrity, and creative descent. Tonight, we discuss Peter's latest work, Tecumseh and the Prophet, the Shawnee Brothers Who Defied a Nation which was released last October and has received many rave reviews from established literary critics across America. Peter, who or what inspired you to write about Tecumseh and his brother Tenskwatawa? Well, I, uh, after I finished my, my previous book, The Earth is Weeping, which deals with the Indian Wars of the American West, I, I decided I wanted to write about uh, a single Native American figure. And, uh, I kind of cast about and, and looked for, uh, you know, famous chiefs who uh, didn't have what I consider to be a, a definitive uh, and, and readable biography. And so I did, initially I, I signed a contract to write a biography solely of Tecumseh. But um, as I got into the research, I realized that that was just not possible, that it would not only uh, do real injustice to his brother, Tenskwatawa, also known as the Shawnee Prophet, who played such a symbiotic role with Tecumseh in the creation uh, of their of their pan-Indian uh, alliance, but it would, it would distort the story of Tecumseh also. And that's been the case, I think, over time, is that um, Tecumseh has been uh, elevated uh, uh, at the expense of, of his brother, and his brother has been, you know, kind of relegated to the dustbin of history. So I went back to the drawing board, literally, and decided to make it a, a, a dual biography. Uh, how long did it take you to research and write this book? Well, it would have taken less time if I'd been on the right track to begin with. But uh, about uh, now that I'm retired and writing full time, it took me, I think, about two and a half, two and a half years to do it. What historical resources, both you know, uh, you know, European, uh, American, and Native American, are there to help provide historical background to Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa? Well, it, it's sort of axiomatic that the farther back you go, especially in uh, American Indian um, history, the harder it is to find uh, source material, either um, primary. Native American source material or contemporaneous material of any sort, and um, the the best sources I found, uh, particularly for for their earlier early lives, as they you know came on to the the national scene, the international scene, so to speak, um, more was written about them than more became available. But the the, the best sources I found were. Uh, material in, in the um, National Archives of Canada, uh, reports of, uh, of British uh, officials in Canada, military and civilians who, who came
came in contact with both of them. Also, um, one particularly um, fine source, I mean, remarkable source, was uh, a, um, a memoir that a fellow named Stephen Riddell wrote. He was uh, a Kentuckian who was captured by the Shawnee and British uh, in a raid when he was 12 years old in 1780. And he and Tecumseh became, uh, he was adopted into the Shawnee band uh, in which Tecumseh lived, and they became fast friends. Um, and Riddell became really a kind of a follower of Tecumseh up through the age of 30. And, uh, and when he returned uh, to his Kentucky family, uh, became a Baptist preacher, still maintained a friendship with both the Shawnee brothers. And then later in life, he wrote a wonderful memoir of his time uh, living with the Shawnee and fighting with the Shawnee. And that was uh, extraordinarily useful for, for Tecumseh's early years. I mean, it, it was, uh, without that, I think I would have had a real hard time reconstructing um, uh, events uh, uh, until he became, a, again, a, a, a major figure. Your book reinterprets, reinterprets the, uh, the, the portrayal of Tenskwatawa who has been scorned in previous historical works. What new sources did you uncover that helped uh, help, you know, reinforce and buttress your reinterpretation of Tenskwatawa's role you know, uh, you know, as, as Tecumseh's you know, uh, partner you know, in creating this pan-Indian confederation? Well, um, first and foremost, I, I, I did a deep dive, so to speak, in, in Shawnee uh, culture and religion and uh, society of the period, you know, reading all the anthropological and, and other works that I could to really understand the milieu in which they were raised. And that made Tengfatawa's, the, the religious creed that he propounded, a uh, religious, spiritual, uh, cultural creed of, of Indian renewal, it made it much more comprehensible than it would have otherwise. And one of the problems and it, that historians traditionally have had, uh, less so uh, more recently, but is, is a lack of understanding of, of, you know, Shawnee culture. And so his doc, Tenkwatawa's doctrine just seems so foreign to anything that, uh, that white Americans understood, you know, early observers, early historians, that it all just seemed ridiculous. And uh, it seemed like Charleston, and, but it's, it's clear from the contemporaneous British and American sources uh, that uh, Tengswatawa indeed was the leading figure in this alliance for the first uh, oh, at least four years after he had his, uh, his uh, epiphany or his vision and created what initially was this, this religious revival movement. Uh, and there was there was there was no doubt that he was he was uh, the principal figure. In fact, even even until uh, very up to the eve of the War of eighteen twelve, the British were so con so considered him to be the leading figure in the alliance. Uh, it was not really until uh, the outbreak of hostilities that the the British came to appreciate uh, Tecumseh and and just what a powerful uh, political and military figure he was among the different Indian tribes. 
Okay. So it was a combination of, of reevaluating the sources and, and placing them in their cultural milieu. You anticipate my next question. What exactly made Tecumseh the brave, the brave and bold leader and warrior that he was? What was it about him? Of course, so much of that is, is ineffable uh, and, and you know, hard to, hard to uh, know at this date. But from, again, from Stephen Riddell's accounts and accounts of other um, whites or mixed race um, people who knew Tecumseh as a young man, either married into his family or or, or were associated with the tribe. He he was the son of a very uh, very noted war leader, and he came from a clan uh, that was noted for producing and expected to produce uh, war leaders or at least very fine warriors. And um, so he had that going for him. And he seems to have been a sort of naturally charismatic young man, uh, an exceptionally good hunter. Um, he had his, apparently his gang of followers at a, a very early age, uh, was you know, the kind that uh, people, kids just gravitated to, and that kind of continued uh, through adolescence and through young adulthood. And his elder brother, uh, who assumed, kind of assumed the role of father when Tecumseh's father was killed, at the Battle of Point Pleasant in 1774, when Tecumseh was only six years old. Uh, so his bro elder brother became a noted war leader in his own right. And so he had that example to follow as well. So the combination of, of his, his, um, his clan affiliation, you know, his father's uh, reputation as a war leader, his elder brothers, and of course, in his own exceptional uh, charisma and, uh, and, and leadership talents. Tell me if this is true or not. I, I forget. I had the impression that Tenskwatawa, was he had like a birthday? He had like a bad eye or something like that or some type of a physical defect? Or is that, yeah. or is that a, a legend or a myth or something no, like that? No, not at all. That, that, that's true. In fact, yeah, Tenskwatawa was, was a misfit from the word go. He... Um, uh, was inept at, at every skill a young Native American boy was expected to master. And when he was a boy, he shot his right eye out with an arrow. Ouch. I mean, I, I can't even imagine how he did that, but he did. And he, he was a complete, an absolute ne'er-do-well. Uh, by age, you know, by alcoholism was uh, extremely significant problem with the Midwestern tribes. And uh, most of the tribes, closer they were to the whites, uh, the greater the, the level of alcoholism uh, was. And you had whole villages that just succumbed to alcoholism and, uh, and the ravages of it. And thanks Tawa, by the time he was 18 or so, he was, a, he was, a, um, he was an alcoholic and, and a complete dissolute and depended really on Tecumseh uh, and his elder sister's husband, um, really for sustenance and then to keep his own family going. Uh, he dabbled in med in you know, me in medicine, that is to say, uh, you know, herbal medicine and, and uh, things like that, uh, shamanism, and was a failure at that. Um, complete, complete there to well. Did either man leave descendants who are alive today? Um, 
they, you know, I didn't really try to trace uh, them up to the present. That was kind of beyond the scope of my research. But I do know that uh, he, that Tecumseh, had a uh, grandson named uh, Thomas Albert, who uh, actually wrote a study um, of the Shawnee uh, that was incorporated in a larger book. Uh, and that actually was a very helpful res resource for me, too. But that was around the turn of the century. I, I really haven't uh, pursued it beyond that. So I, my answer is I, I don't know. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised if there were, but I, I honestly don't know. What were Tecumseh's and Tenskwatawa's objectives in creating the Pan-Indian Confederation against the white settlers? What were, what was, what, can you give us an overview of the overall situation? Where was this all located, this confederation? Yeah. This, we're talking about what was, you know, what is known as the Old Northwest, that is to say the present-day uh, Ohio Valley and Great Lakes region, uh, Michigan, uh, Indiana, um, Ohio, uh, Wisconsin, and, and Illinois. And the Shawnee brothers were born and raised in Ohio, but ended up after Tenkwatawa had his vision, first of several visions that, that uh, led to this nativist revival creed that he espoused in 1805. They were living in Ohio at the time. They eventually migrated uh, with their followers to uh, uh, Indiana. Uh, the situation was uh, William Henry Harrison was the governor of the Indiana Territory, which for, for the first uh, first years uh, of the 19th century incorporated almost the entire Midwest, um, negotiated a, a number of really nefarious treaties with the various Indian tribes who inhabited the region. He would kind of play tribes against one another. Um, bribe chiefs uh, into parting with land, a lot of chicanery. And uh, so the alliance began strictly as, again, a cultural, religious revival movement to try to uh, arrest Indian decline. And it slowly became, uh, as Tecumseh began to play a larger role, it became an alliance based not only on the, in the shared religious and cultural beliefs that Tenkwatawa propounded, but more importantly on the notion that there should be no more treaties, that the, the Indians would abide by the treaties that had been negotiated with Governor Harrison and, and the boundaries that were established with the then young state of Ohio, but they would not tolerate any more, uh, any more treaties that, uh, the thrust of their argument was that Indian land belonged to all the tribes equally, that no one tribe or, or portion of a tribe had the right to sell uh, or barter Indian land without the permission of all. And uh, that was essentially the thrust of it, that the, the, the tribes of the Midwest should unite in opposing any further American encroachment, that they would not um, initiate war, but if after uh, the last treaty Harris negotiated in 1805, if he tried to negotiate any further treaties, that would be a cause for uh, defense of, a defense of war. 
Okay. Now, the way you mentioned uh, future President William Henry Harrison earlier, the, the, the basic what you said, are you, are you saying that he was basically a villain in this book, the way as as the way you interpret him? Well, no, you know, no one's ever, well, I shouldn't say no one ever, but people are seldom, you know, uh, either either entirely a villain or entirely good in history. Harrison was not not a villain per se. He actually was operating under marching orders from Thomas Jefferson, President Jefferson, who uh, essentially wanted to establish what he called an empire of liberty. That is to say, you know, you had this, the growing population east of the Appalachian Mountains along the Atlantic seaboard uh, that was just growing too large to to maintain a, a, a sustainable level of prosperity uh, for the kind of uh, agricultural rural society that he envisioned as being ideal for the United States and an immigration over the Appalachian, which had already begun and was already moving along uh, legally or otherwise, was in fact des- desirable um, to to expand um, expand the nation, expand uh, opportunities for those who were you know, bottled up on the Atlantic seaboard, also to counter the French, first the Spanish, then the French, West Mississippi River, and so he gave uh, and, and Harrison his orders, which were to negotiate all the treaties you possibly can, short of war. The idea being, in Jefferson's mind, to to encourage the Indians to uh, give up hunting. Uh, they the tribes of the Midwest at the time were they lived in the six villages, but they practiced a mixed economy of hunting and agriculture. And and Jefferson's notion was we turn them all into farmers. Uh, they'll need less land, and they'll be willing to sell land to us. And also. He established a chain of what were called uh, Indian factories, where Indians would buy goods they needed from government traders uh, and would run up so much debt that they would be forced to sell land to to uh, pay their debts. So, and, and those tribes that resisted should be uh, should be pushed westward. Uh, so Harrison is really essentially following orders from Thomas Jefferson. Please right? tell me. Yep. And, and zeal- like zealously. I mean, but he, but he was, those were his marching orders. Please tell our listeners what happened at the Battle of Tippecanoe. How did it start and what happened at the battle? Uh, Tippecanoe uh, it occurred in uh, the autumn of 1811. Uh, William Henry Harrison was the governor of a much reduced Indiana territory by then. Uh, by 1809, I'm sorry, by 1811, when the uh, battle occurred, uh, the Michigan Territory had been lopped off of the Indiana Territory. The Illinois, Illinois Territory had been lopped off. Ohio was the state. And Harrison was basically left with pretty much just modern-day Indiana, which was still a territory, and uh, nearly two-thirds of which was still an Indian possession, Indian land. And Harrison had high political ambitions. Uh, he wanted to, you know, he wanted to be governor of a state and not just a, a territory. And um, he, the, the easiest way he saw that was to provoke a war with uh, Tecumseh and the Prophet and oust them 
from their uh, home village of Prophetstown in um, uh, uh, East Central um, uh, Indiana. And what caused the battle, Tecumseh had decided that he, want, he was going to make a pilgrimage to the powerful tribes south of the Ohio River in, in the modern day South, uh, the, the Cherokee, the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, and the Creeks to try to get them to join with uh, the already expansive uh, multi-tribal alliance that, that he and his brother had created north of the Ohio River. And he made the mistake of telling Harris, well, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going to, they were, they were at a conference, uh, a council, and he said, well, I'm leaving now to go south to recruit uh, these tribes for my allowance, my alliance, but we mean, you know, no harm that we're doing just what the whites do when they formed their, their, uh, you know, confederation. And uh, Harrison saw that as an opportunity to strike uh, before, as he saw it, Tecumseh came back with a much stronger uh, and, and, and more dangerous alliance. So he, he struck um, Prophetstown preemptively and uh, you know, crossed over into what was Indian land to attack um, the uh, multi-tribal gathering at Prophetstown, which was on the Wabash and Tippecanoe rivers, thus the name Tippecanoe. And uh, there were several tribes represented there. And Tengswatawa uh, was kind of caught off guard. Uh, he he and Tecumseh had agreed to do nothing to provoke conflict while Tecumseh was on his, you know, recruiting drive. But it was, I mean, he was faced with, I mean, Harris had marched his army against him. And so he had no real choice but to fight. Now, and uh, he ended up, I mean, they ended up, the battle was an interesting battle. I, I, without belaboring it, uh, the Harrison one in the sense that he, the Indians abandoned Provincetown, but he suffered proportionately heavier casualties. And um, all he did was burn the town and then return to the territorial capital of Vincennes. And all he really did was stir up the hornet's nest and cause even more Indians who were wavering to decide to join the alliance because they realized that the handwriting was on the wall that the Americans were after all of us. And um, he did a very good job of, of, uh, of propagandizing in his reports to Washington, D.C. He was able to uh, convince the administration that this was a, a major victory in his part, but all it did was just to lead to a larger uh, Indian alliance. Looking back in hindsight, um, was the Panama Indian Confederation created by Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa doomed from the start, or if the Battle of Tippecanoe had gone differently and the Indians had decisively won the battle, do you think American history would have been altered significantly? What are your what what, what did your research tell you? Yeah, not not by Tippecanoe, but but by the subsequent uh, 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 alliance that Tecumseh and uh, Tenskwatawa made with the British in the War of uh, Tecumseh, by that time, he was you know he was the acknowledged political military leader of an alliance that um, at its peak um, in the early um, early 
years of the War of 1812, to give you some put in some context, he had three to, uh, three times as many warriors um, under his leadership as did Sitting Bull and the Crazy Horse of the Bull of Bighorn, which represented the apex of Indian resistance west, you know, in the American West. He had nearly six. 500 warriors that um, pledged their allegiance to him that along with you know the, the of course the British forces in Western Canada and there were a number of opportunities that that were missed uh, not so much by Tecumseh and, and the Indian and his Indian allies but bungling by the British not committing enough resources to the fight in part because they were bogged down fighting Napoleon in, in Europe but even allowing for that, there were a number of British missteps that, uh, given the abysmal uh, fighting record of the American Army throughout the War of 1812, um, there were a number of opportunities, and readers of the book will, will see these quite clearly, when uh, it was quite conceivable that Tecumseh uh, and the British could have prevailed and the British, in exchange for the Indians' assistance in in uh, preventing American invasion of of Western Canada, uh, what was then called Western Canada, modern day you know Western Ontario, in exchange for that, they promised, and they were sincere in their promise, that if they succeeded in in uh, holding the Americans out of Canada and of capturing Detroit, which they did, Tecumseh and the British captured Detroit uh, from a, a, a 2,500 strong um, American army, the, the, one of the two biggest American armies that in the war, and that the, if, if the British Indians prevailed in the war, that the Tecumseh and Tenkwatao and their alliance would be granted an Indian buffer state. At a minimum, uh, it would have uh, comprised all of Michigan. Wow. And conceivably parts of uh, northern Ohio and and northern Indiana. So it, uh, it it very very easily could have changed the course of history. And I actually went into the book with kind of a fatalistic approach, thinking that they were sort of doomed from the start. But as I got deeper into the into what occurred during the War of 1812 uh, in that theater, I realized, oh my gosh, there there were some real opportunities there. It, it, uh, it wouldn't have taken much to, uh, to have uh, tilted the balance. Peter, uh, please tell our listeners, where can they find this book? Is it available in stores? Oh, yeah. It, it, it's, uh, it's, the publisher is, you know, Knopf, a major, one of, you know, major, major New York publishers. And it's available on Amazon, uh, available in, in Barnes & Noble or, or independent bookstores. Um, so it, it's 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 as available as any other uh, New York, you know, trade published book. Um, I guess Amazon, of course, is always the, the best price, but uh, but it's also they also would find it in their, in their local bookstores. I would imagine. Peter, uh, last question: What is your next book project, and when can we expect its release? Well, I, uh, my next book, I've decided to round out what is sort of an informal trilogy. I've kind of done it chronologically backwards. You know, I started with The Earth is Weeping, the epic story of Indian Wars to the American West. And then Tecumseh and the Prophet, and I should say it's much more than a biography of Tecumseh and his brother, 
as large a subject and important as it as it is, because I I do consider them not only was Tecumseh arguably the greatest Indian political and military leader, but his brother was clearly the greatest Indian prophet, and that meant a lot in Native American culture. It's not only is it a dual biography of them, but it's also the story of really the the struggle for the whole American heartland. I mean, going back to uh, before back to the French Indian Wars all the way through the War of eighteen twelve. So it really captures the United States, um, the colonial, then the United States conflicts with the uh, tribes uh, north of the Mississippi River and west of the Appalachians. So the book I'm working on now that will round this out is I'm looking at what happened in the Deep South during roughly the same time period. And um, the working title uh, of my next book, which I'm about two-thirds of the way through, and I would hope it would be out in a couple of years, two and a half years, is Red Sticks and Old Hickory, The Creeks, Andrew Jackson, and the Bitter Struggle for the American South. So with that, I will have covered you know, the three large geographical areas. Uh, where the United States um, you know, came into uh, uh, military conflict with uh, Native Americans as uh, the United States pushed westward. Peter, I want to thank you so much for appearing on your show. Uh, please be safe, and I wish you a very happy new year and your family. Thank you, and goodbye. Thank you so much, man. Take care. You're bye-bye. welcome. Okay, bye-bye. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing novelist Dwayne Gill. Thank you and good night.